Morning, everyone. Gareth, how are you doing today, buddy? Hey, I'm doing well. How about you? Doing pretty well. What do you make of the market at the moment? The stock market's on pause until we get the Fed tomorrow and then Apple earnings Thursday and Friday, the non-farm payrolls. I think that the crypto market's on pause um, waiting for the spot ETF, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Although every like hint of news seems to move the market massively at this point, whether uh, real or fake, right? Yeah, and that's exactly it. And you're even seeing some of these altcoins, you know, pumping. We've seen Solana rally quite a bit. We've seen Chainlink and and even some of the left behind ones have had really big moves. So so money's filtering back into the crypto sector, even into the altcoins for now. The question is, you know, my biggest question is when we see that a uh, that spot ETF approved, it's gonna pop price. But does that put in a short term high on Bitcoin? Like is it a sell the news event afterwards, you know? Probably. I've been saying, uh, you know, buy the rumor, uh, buy the after news dip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I don't know that I want to uh, get in front of that uh, train, pick it, you know, as uh, Dave Weisberg always says, picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. Not sure that I want to short something like that, but uh, certainly look to, to get in if it, if it does actually dip back. We're waiting for Rand to come up. Uh, he's actually live uh, at the moment at Solana DevCon. So we're going to get some perspective on what's happening there. We often see, obviously, some significant price movement when we have conferences like this. So wondering if that had anything to do with this sort of large Solana move, Gareth, you talked about, you know, that uh, maybe that was the catalyst and now it's continuing up during that. And once again, we often then get a sort of a sell-off afterwards. Uh, have you taken a look at Solana at all, Gareth? Like the actual chart. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so interestingly enough, I have dabbled in on the short side just a little bit up in this range. So, you know, again, I'm not so familiar with the moves at different events, but just based on the chart, we're now getting back to levels around this 36, 37 level where there's a lot of resistance up here. And it doesn't mean it can't push through, but, but to me, it's, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And again, for me, it's, it's shorter term trades. I want to be clear on that. It's nothing against Solana. It's just, I just look to, to make money on little moves in price. So if Solana pulls back two bucks, I'm out and and I look to maybe buy the dip at that point. But um, but I do think it's getting a little long in the tooth and I'd be interested to hear what Rand has to say. Yeah, I'm interested when he pops up too. real quick, everybody, as we wait for them, I'm just going to go ahead and I guess cook through the uh, main news stories that we do have today. There's a few. It's been a, surprisingly, even with all this price move, it's been sort of, a I think, a um, calm time. Uh, as Garrett said, sort of on pause in a lot of markets waiting for FOMC. Bitcoin market uh, showing a lot of signs of, of life, especially in the altcoins with market cap going up, which indicates there is some actual new capital here. But I think the big money is still waiting for the ETF to, to his point. But here's some of sort of the bigger stories that we have today. Bitcoin address activity slows, but record 40 million in profit. 40 million wallets in profit is the most that we've ever had, even with price trading at half effectively of what the all-time high was. If you guys have looked at the metrics, for people who... Dollar cost averaged into Bitcoin at any amount weekly, even if the first day the dollar cost average is at the all-time high, you're massively in profit right now because price uh, was so low for so long. I uh, see that RAN is popping in right now. Um, and so it really does show you the, uh, the, the benefit of doing that dollar cost averaging, continuing to buy assets that you like, especially because then you get that uh, sort of discount for a very long time. So even if you bought at the all-time high, doing well. A16Z plans new $3.4 billion fund. That one's going to uh, give Mario wet dreams because nobody loves talking about venture capital investment in the crypto space more than Mario. 
3.4 billion fund is an absolutely massive, massive fund. Vitalik had a new blog post on L2s. It's worth checking out. Raul Paul, this is one of the headlines. Funny because it came from my conversation with him on Sunday on my podcast, but he said a spot ETF coming after BTC. I think that's probably a very likely uh, conclusion to come to because there will be no reason for them to reject a ETH spot ETF if the justifications for a Bitcoin spot ETF are there. Drunken Miller, I should own Bitcoin. We're going to dive into that later. CZ said that fiat currencies will vanish, vanish soon. And speaking of people that said things that are strange, not saying that one is. SPF says not sure 150 times on stand. Rand, I'm not sure if you're able. I keep trying to bring you up, but uh, it's not showing you connected. But uh, maybe you are. But yeah, SPF said the words not sure 150 times on the stand. He's playing the, uh, the I don't recall that card. Spain brings forward Mika crypto rules by six months after EU pressure. Crypto asset manager Valkyrie amends spot Bitcoin ETF filing. I had Steve McClurg on my YouTube this morning from Valkyrie. He said that uh, as much as it keeps being shown as a news headline, these slight updates to everyone's filings are absolute nothing burgers. Hong Kong advances CBDC pilot bringing EHTD trials to phase two and the Bitcoin white paper, of course, turning 15 here. Uh, so we're trying to get uh, Rand up on stage. Just not see. Oh, Rand, you're here. Can you hear us? I'm up. I'm yeah, up. I'm up. I'm up. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Listen, we, we did it. We, we started did it. talking about the the fact that Solana obviously is pumping. The fact that sometimes that can be driven by hype coming into conferences, hype at conferences. But I, I want the uh, on the ground update. What's it like? Is it crowded? What's the vibe? Yeah. So I came here. Just I actually didn't come here to make content. I came here because I wanted to understand what's really happening in the Solana ecosystem. Um, let's just say that I'm hugely, hugely, hugely impressed. Um, it's, it's in Amsterdam. The halls are full. When I say full, probably 3,500 to 4,500 people at the conference. A very well-organized event. But I think the thing that impresses me the most about this conference and uh, the most about the people that are here is that this is not retail investors. What's, what's left here are 3,500 to 4,500 active developers, geeks, people funding. Um, it's that kind of market. So um, really, really, really excited to see what I saw here today. I walked into this pretty bullish. And as I've seen um, the, the, the caliber of people that are in here, and the number of people that are in here and the energy that's here, I think I'm much more confident that I think Solana becomes the number three. I think, it, I think eventually it goes Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana. And, um, you know, I, I just don't think that there's any layer one that, show, that has anything close to this other than Ethereum. That's interesting. That's bigger than consensus in the United States, which wasn't obviously uh, a conference just for a single protocol or blockchain. You and I keep talking about the fact that once you exit the United States, it's like there's no bear market. You really get the excitement for what's being built and, and what's happening. But I mean, 3,500 to 4,500 people, not retail, well, is insane. The big thing here, the big thing here, Scott, is that, you know, Solana was dead exactly a year ago because FTX collapsed. And everyone just thought because FTX was seeding all these projects that Solana would just collapse. The big talk now is that actually at that point, FTX was, I'm not going to say toxic because they weren't negative, but they weren't all good because they were just investing in projects. They were investing without doing any kind of due diligence. And they were bringing, 
if you want to call it the, the wrong kind of project onto chain here. All that's out, all the frost is out. And now what you're seeing is you're seeing real development. For, for those people who are really technical in the crowd, um, Solana is launching a thing called Fire Dancer, which is um, it's a reconstruction of their validator in infrastructure, which is done, being done by Jump, which should get this thing to millions of transactions per second. Like you're talking like serious numbers here, numbers that you can't even fathom in blockchain. And I mean, they launched on testnet. They either have launched or they are launching on testnet now, which I think it's actually live now on testnet, and it's actually working. Which means that it's, you know, you, you could soon see a much, much, much faster Solana, um, and much cheaper Solana. So yeah, I mean, I must say I walked in here pretty uh, neutral. I mean, bullish, but but more. I came here quite inquisitive, and I'm here now, and it's I'm I'm bullish as I'm bullish as can be on Solana. I really think it's going to be. Uh, Solana number three, Ethereum number two, and Bitcoin number one yeah, we, for the next cycle. Yeah, I mean, we talked to Raul Paul last week. I had him on the podcast on Sunday, and you basically just described his thesis. I mean, he, he thinks the same thing. We sort of had everything on ETH cycle last time, and he thinks it's going to be everything on Solana because he finally did a deep dive into Fire Dancer, which you just described. I mean, there's a lot of people now who are thinking, you know, and also I think you get some of the like, Sorry, a lot of people I, I, were angry at going. I was saying, I remember when I went to Ethereum DevCon um, in the midst of the bear market, the first bear market that Ethereum was alive in. And I remember I went to the first Ethereum DevCon. And I remember the thing that impressed me about the Ethereum DevCon was the caliber of brain power walking in the halls. Because that was like, like, I just remember I'd never seen so many smart people in one place. And I'm getting the same kind of, of, of feeling now. I'm getting the same feeling now. I guess the question that, like, that we always come back to is it's amazing that we have things like Fire Dancer or obviously the merge and scaling for all these protocols, but how do we actually utilize that speed? <laughs> uh, in other words, where does the adoption come from that that's even necessary? Look, most projects that I speak to here and I ask them, you know, why Solana, why not Ethereum? And they say, look, for what, for what we're trying to build, you can't use Ethereum. Because it's just, you know, like, for example, order books on chain. You can't do that on Ethereum because every time you move an order from, you know, one cent up, one cent down, you need to put in a new transaction and pay new gas fees. On Solana, and specifically if you add Solana Fire Dancer onto it, then uh, you, you, all of a sudden you can do real-world applications. Funny enough, on stage now, on stage now, a few minutes ago was, um, I think her name's Catherine Gu, and she's the head of CBDCs and uh, payment or... or um, crypto at, at uh, Visa. And um, they were very, very, very excited about the transaction speeds. And if you look at Jeremy Allaire, Jeremy Allaire also tweeted today, he said like, well, these numbers, we can get really, really, really excited. So I think, I think what may happen is that Solana will become the money blockchain. And I think today Tron kind of fulfills that, but I think Solana may actually become the money blockchain with all the developments that are going on here. Yeah, the USDC news was kind of one of those bear market things that nobody talked about. We did, obviously, uh, you know, maybe a couple months ago. And seems like one of those that's going to just gain major traction as price goes up, right? I mean, faster, cheaper, stable coins on Solana. And we always try to talk about that the USDT, most of the transaction volume, like you said, comes on Tron and nobody has a favorable view of Tron, literally. Yeah, well, well, look, so I, I've asked, I've gone around there and I've asked 
many companies that are developing on Solana. So look, why are you developing on Solana? And I was very like, you know me, uh, if I, once I get a, once I start chewing the bone, I don't let it go. And so I punted them. I said, okay, why not Ethereum? And they said, look, too, too slow, too expensive. I said, okay, great. So use Ethereum layer two. They said, look, the problem with Ethereum layer two is that you're constantly bridging between layer one and layer two. And bridges represent, I mean, we know what bridges, we know what the problem is with bridges and, and, and stuff like that. Um, and they say it's a very clunky experience. They call layer one, layer two. Now apparently there's a new thing called layer threes. And they, they say that's just a layer of headaches you have to go through as a developer when you're developing on the protocol. Then I prodded them and said, okay, well, why not develop on Aptos and Sui? Because, you know, in theory, uh, Aptos and Sui are built using a language called Move. Move is a, a newer derivative of, of, of Rust, which is Solana's language. And most of them say that the culture of the uh, Aptos and Suri blockchains doesn't suit what they're trying to do and that they don't have any kind of community. And I agree. And what we're realizing with Solana is that A, they've got very good technology. B, VCs are starting to feel more comfortable that they've turned that corner. The same corner that ETH turned when, we, when everyone declared ETH dead at $80 or whatever it was in the, in the previous bear market. And then, you know, the, the third thing is Solana's got a very vibrant community. Um, you know, the, the community follows them around the world. We're here in Amsterdam. The conference venue is about 25 to 30 minutes away from the central city. So it's not very similar to the, the setup that they had in Lisbon. And what you, had in, what you have there is you have coffee shops in Amsterdam filled with people talking about crypto, talking about Solana. You can see the meetings happening in the lobbies of the hotels and stuff like that. And remember, this is not, this is unlike a normal, like a consensus where everything happens around the hotel. This is half an hour away from any kind of hotel. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I do let us know when you need to run. I know that you uh, weren't even expecting. No, no, I, I'm, I'm here to talk. I'm here to talk for a while. I'm actually, I've just got away from the, uh, the space, the uh, conference and all the, the hype. I'm sitting in a corner in the dining room here talking to you guys. Oh, I'm sorry to keep going with you. I know we have a big panel, but you're you're on the ground. What what are the most exciting things that you've seen? Was there anything new that's being built that was unexpected? New use cases for blockchain, new crypto use cases, I, or is it more of like people building just the same ideas that were on Ethereum now doing it on Solana? I think um, so far day one has been really about Solana the protocol. I haven't spent much time talking to projects, I'm saying to new projects that I'm going to do tomorrow. Day one is focused on Solana, the protocol, big partnerships, Visa in about an hour. Google is going to be on stage. Um, the Google uh, Cloud um, team are going to be on stage, talking on stage. I don't know what they're going to talk about. As I said, Visa was on. Um, it just feels like this is today is about the protocol. Firedancer was on earlier today. They're on again tomorrow. So today it's been less about projects and more about how good this layer one is. And let me tell you, this layer one is unbelievable. It's like, you know, I've been to lots of DevCons. I've never seen a, this combination before. Um, I, have, I haven't seen it for many years. I mean, probably I saw it in Ethereum a, a long time ago, but since then I haven't seen this kind of combination before. Uh, which is funny because I still think there's a perception, even pre-FTX, that Solana was the chain that, shuts down or doesn't work or, or fails, but it's actually been quite a long time. I think, it's had, 
Yeah, I think it's, uh, don't quote me on the numbers, but I think it's had about 10 months of uh, no shutdowns or something like that, which is, you know, also remember, remember why Solana was being shut down. Solana was being shut down because the transaction fees are so low that it's actually viable for you to span the network because to span the network and try and shut it down costs you almost nothing. You couldn't do the same thing on Ethereum because the, the gas fees are just not worth the bot attack. Now, it seems like they've solved it through a whole lot of very smart uh, engineering. It seems like they've solved it, as I said, I think they've had about 10 months of straight up time. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, again, very bullish. It just seems positive. Everything's positive here. Anybody else on the panel closely following uh, closely following Solana and development? Tony, obviously, you have a podcast. You're interviewing a lot of people in this space. Do you have any thoughts here? Um, nothing in addition to add, but like you, I've spoken to Raul Powell um, and uh, quite a few folks who are bullish on Solana. But, um, you know, I, I personally don't think it's going to be an ETH killer, but uh, certainly we'll see how things play out. Um, but nothing else to add. Yeah, Rand, are people still even using the term ETH killer? No, no. I mean, look, I think everyone knows that Ethereum is going to be the biggest layer one uh, for smart contracts, at least for the next cycle. I don't know what happens after that. Um, but I think what you get a sense when you talk to developers is that building on a layer two is not as, as um, elegant as building directly onto a layer one. And I think what these guys are talking about is they're building onto, onto layer one. Now, again, the big question is, if you want to build directly onto layer one, there's a, a lot of applications <coughs> that want to build directly onto layer one. Where do you go if you're not going to go onto Ethereum because of the gas fees? Yeah, but a year ago, you would have thought that nobody would touch Solana with a 10-foot pole. So it's really interesting that they've been able to overcome that sort of stigma and all that happened a year ago. I, mean, I thought that really impressive. Go ahead, Nick. I was actually just going to ask Ryan a question. And the question is, you know, what is their plan? Or have you heard of new wallets there? What's their plan to get user acquisition away from EVM-compatible chains and MetaMask and what people are familiar with? And to start using Solana, like Phantom Wallet or, or new wallets, um, and then kind of what's their strategy to get that to happen? I think it feels like to me their strategy is to cultivate the developer network. And that's why I said, like, this is not a retail-centric conference. The talks are not retail-centric at all. But in fact, I think most of retail, with respect, I think most of retail probably wouldn't enjoy or understand a lot of the, the tech talk that's here. Uh, it's become much more of a, I'm not going to say it's a dev conference, not exactly a developer conference. But I think their structure here is to nurture the developer ecosystem to build really cool shit. And I'll just, I'll read you something because I took a photo. I'm going to go into my photos. Um, I'm trying to read you something about NFTs. So if you were to mint 10,000 NFTs on Solana, it will cost you $18. To mint 10,000 of the same NFTs on Ethereum would cost you $30,000. And to mint the same 10000 on Polygon would cost you $52. Now, let's go into a higher number. Let's go into a million NFTs. If you wanted to mint a million NFTs on Solana, $141. If you wanted to mint on Ethereum, it would cost you $3 million. And if you want to do it on Polygon, it would cost you $5,000. So you're talking, about, you're talking about how do you get adoption? You get adoption by creating NFTs that don't cost a lot of money to mint and to move around. And so that's what they're focusing on. They're saying, look, if we can build the network, the developers will build the cool shit and the, re and the, 
and the investors and then the the retailers will invest in will come and in, uh, will come and use the product on. They're not doing it in a in a fake approach. When I say fake approach, um, a fake approach for me is uh, we'll incentivize you with an airdrop because we know what happens with those airdrop farms. We know exactly what happens. Um, you know, you get the airdrop, you sold your airdrop, and then you leave, and you probably never come back to the chain, even though you've downloaded the wallet. But hey, you count as a user, so good for you. You know what I mean? So they, I think their approach is just keep building cool shit. Yeah, build it, and they see what happens if you build it they will come exactly marshall go ahead yeah hey ren uh <clears throat> look i'm not gonna bash anything about solana I, I guess the question is if you if a lot of people believe that solana is going to be the money chain because it is so easy i guess maybe by design or not I, i'm not an expert um to like restart their chain and move it is there anybody talking about like regulatory concerns where maybe there's a lot more oversight on this chain from government entities because it can be shut down, et cetera, et cetera? Well, look, number one, I think, and, and as I said, I, I don't want to speak too soon, but it sounds to me like they've resolved a lot of the shutdown issues. Again, the reason why the shutdown issues happened is because it was so cheap to attack the network with transactions. That's why it happened, which is now no longer the case. Um, again, I said it's had 10 months of, of, of uptime, and touch wood, it, it, it continues. Um, in terms of regulatory, I think that uh, there's not much talk about it here. We haven't had, this is not an American conference. We haven't had the, you know, American conferences and America in general is all about regulation, right? That's the narrative in, in the States. But I think as soon as you move out of the, out of the States, the talk is very little about regulation and it's much more about innovation. So like when I went to Korea earlier this year, um, same thing, like, they're not really talking about regulation. That's like their approach is that the regulators will regulate around the innovation. In the U.S., it's the other way around. The innovators will innovate around the regulation. And that's very, that's very, very, very much an American mentality. And as soon as you leave America, regardless of whether you're in Amsterdam or Lisbon last year or Korea or Hong Kong, that's not their mentality. That's, that's very much an American way of thinking. A hundred percent. I mean, we've said it a, a million times, but I couldn't believe the stark contrast both years that I've now basically gone from a conference in the United States right over to Singapore for a conference in Asia. It's like worlds apart. Nobody, yeah, nobody, think... nobody's talking about SDF. Well, maybe at Solana, they might be, but certainly in Singapore, nobody's talking about SDF. Nobody's talking about BlockFi or Celsius or Voyager. They're not talking about Gary Gensler. They literally don't give a shit. It's like there was never a bear market and never this contagion. Yeah, I mean, look, after having attended the Token 2049 in Singapore and, you know, being here and, I mean, and I've done my fair share of conferences, I must say my appetite to go back to the U.S. conferences next year is very, 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 very low. I mean, I'll probably do some of them just because I have a lot of, you know, a lot of our channel and a lot of people here. Uh, I like to go and network with the community, so I'll probably do it. But in terms of priority, in, in terms of which conferences are the most important, the ones that are the most important are the ones outside of the U.S., the ones in Korea, the ones in Japan, uh, the ones here in Amsterdam, or and this one's moving to Singapore next year. Um, and what you can see is that they also now, they've broken away from, from running these conferences in the U.S. They're not running these conferences in the U.S. They, they don't want to worry about regulation. Here, sponsors, any sponsor can be a sponsor without worrying about the SEC taking them down or giving them a penalty or perhaps saying that they're trying to, to um, 
to uh, woo American uh, uh, participation. So I think, yeah, I think what's, what's landed up happening is that the U.S. conferences are actually quite unimportant in the big scheme of things now. It's unfortunate. I because think the I U.S. Think that is unimportant. Talent. Yeah, I think you can take that a step further and say the U.S. is becoming unimportant in the grand scheme of things for crypto, which is a really sad thing to say as an American. But like, how many people are aggressively trying well, to build something here? Well, it is. But then what's happening now is you're realizing just how important the U.S. is. And that's the second part of what we want to speak about today on the spaces, which is talking about the investors in America who control so much money uh, now saying that they don't own enough Bitcoin or that they should own Bitcoin. Or so, you know, maybe you can say, OK, America's become a little bit unimportant. But now look at the price action that is being moved, uh, uh, created because of the ETF in the United States. Actually, I should, I should be more clear. I, don't, I think American money is very important. I just think that the innovation in the space is moving offshore and it's going to continue with or without us. And so the sort of yeah, idea that the United sure. States was a bastion of technology and the leading in every single new technological innovation, when you have a gerontocracy of 85-year-olds who scream, hey, you kids, get off my lawns, anything new that they don't understand... And this is not unique to blockchain anymore. It's the same for AI, right? We've talked about this, but they're making the same arguments against AI now that they have been making against uh, Bitcoin for years. They're just scared of anything new that they don't understand and they can't control. But that was a nice segue, obviously, because you're talking about clearly Druckenmiller, who said he should own Bitcoin. I'll read you guys his exact quote. Of course, Stanley Druckenmiller is one of the most uh, famous investors of all time. The context is that he was having a fireside chat with Paul Tudor Jones, so... That should be noted since uh, Paul Tudor Jones is a notorious Bitcoin bull. He's been favorable on Bitcoin for a very long time. So you should know who he was talking to and why they were saying it. This is what he said. He said, I'm 70, you're, I'm 70 years old. I own gold. I was surprised that Bitcoin got going. But, you know, it's clear that the young people look at it as a store of value because it's a lot easier to do stuff with. 17 years, to me, it's a brand. I like gold because it's a 5,000-year-old brand, but the young people have all the money, certainly the ones on the West Coast do, he told Paul Tudor Jones. So I like them both. I don't own any Bitcoin, but I should. And you guys, now I'm looking for the actual tweet. I know we have it, but that he's not the only person uh, who is rapidly changing their tone uh, on this asset class. Uh, I'll find it, but El Arian also had a very similar uh, comment, which was out of nowhere. I'm, I'm going to pull it up right now. And this was in the context, I believe, basically that the Treasury sees demand slump in 35 billion 10-year option amid bond yield surges. And so Mohamed Al-Aryan at the du Dubai AIM Summit said he likes a barbell portfolio of cash and Bitcoin. Anyone who's read uh, Nassim Taleb understands the idea of the barbell, basically avoiding everything in the middle and being heavy on both who ends. Who said that, Scott? That was uh, Scott, who said that? Mohamed Al-Aryan. So obviously, Amazing. CIO of PIMCO, Harvard Management, Chief Economist Advisor to Ensure Alliance. I mean, you know, one of the bigger sort of legacy market voices now saying that that's his preferred strategy. So this isn't just Druckenmiller. These guys obviously get it. Uh, Larry Fink is on TV doing a roadshow, whether it's in the interest of BlackRock or he actually believes it, saying that uh, crypto is a flight to quality. Like, this is where the United States, to your point, is really, really important. Um, uh, Tony, I see you have your hand up. And after you, I want to ask Andy a couple questions about this. Go ahead, Tony. Yeah, Scott, I wanted Scott, to just say I... that... Oh, okay. Go ahead, I, I go just ahead. want to say that we, we've seen this story before. If you recall back in 2020, 
Paul Tudor Jones kicked off that bullish narrative around Bitcoin when he said it was the fastest horse in the race. And then Druckenmiller came about a month or two after that. And there were some other uh, Bill Miller and these guys started popping out of the woodwork. We're seeing that story play out again. And to your point, um, many of them are going on mainstream uh, TV and, and media and uh, pushing that narrative. So certainly makes me bullish and it just takes me back to 2020 when they were making the rounds doing this. Yeah, and this time they'll likely have a spot ETF to buy if they're afraid of buying spot uh, Bitcoin for better or for worse, right? Okay, a- Andy, I wanted to yeah, talk absolutely. to you. Yeah, Andy, I want to talk to you about this narrative. Obviously, the owners of, of Miles Franklin, you have pretty deep perspective on metals. Uh, hearing them compare this to gold, do you view Bitcoin as a digital gold? Do you think it's a risk asset? Where do you really think this falls at the Uh, I, I don't really, I've never really looked at it as digital gold, but I look, I've always believed that they in many ways are cut from the same cloth. They speak to the same issues and they ought to speak to the same person. I have always, always been of the belief that it shouldn't be an either, or it should be a, a both. I think they complement one another. To me, uh, Bitcoin represents, um, opportunity. It it represents many of the same things that gold does in terms of freedom from the matrix or or the ability to have your assets in your own possession free from any counterparty risk. To me, that's really the most important thing, at least from a standpoint of the way that I look at the world. I think counterparty risk will be a very nasty buzzword in the future um, as 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 things start to unwind. A bit, and I and I think that um, you know, from a historical point of view, the world has used government bonds as a savings vehicle, and and I think this is not a a, a historical precedent. This is somewhat, in terms of his history, a, a relatively new concept, and I think it's beginning to fade. And as it does, I think the main benefactors will be not only gold and silver, but also. Bitcoin. And I have no problem in saying that, but I I think the way that I look at the world would say that both gold and Bitcoin should be owned. Both gold and Bitcoin should be part of everyone's portfolio. And, and I think it was, it was Stanley Druckenmiller who was saying, if I understood that right, that you're right. I mean, gold has that history. Gold is being accumulated by central banks. That doesn't mean I don't understand the virtues of Bitcoin. I certainly do. And, and, um, I guess if I were going to appeal to anyone out there, it's that this doesn't have to be a contentious either or situation. I think your portfolio is only stronger having allocations to both. And we see that with our client base and we advocate for it. So it's it's certainly not uh, all gold all the time. But uh, I do think that they're very similar, and at least in the way that they both should be part yeah. of people's portfolio. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the fact that bonds or treasuries have sort of become the de facto savings account. People see 5%, they obviously jump on it. I almost joke that it's like stimulus for wealthy people. They can just get 5% uh, with their with their cash on the sidelines. But we just saw that the uh, U.S. Treasury is going to estimate estimate to borrow 70, $776 billion more in the fourth quarter, right, uh, after, I believe, over a trillion in the, in the, in the last quarter before that. We know that the debt has now gone up from 31 trillion to over 33 trillion in a matter of months since the debt, right. debt ceiling was raised. And we're seeing extremely poor demand in these options. Nobody That's wants right. these things. 
That's right. And that's my so point. That's and that's why. That's not a very good saving. No, it's not. And that's why if you're buying treasuries, it better be really, really short term duration. And I guess the bigger issue to me, and you're right. And when we talk about that $33 trillion debt, it, it, it excludes the, the elephant in the room. And that is Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security and government military pensions, which exceed $130 trillion in and of themselves a trillion seconds ago, being 31,688 years ago. The numbers are so big, it's it's incredible. But the bigger argument or the bigger, I guess you could say, um, point for both gold and Bitcoin is that, you know, we have eclipsed 130% debt to GDP. And if you go back through history, literally every single time, 100% of the time, any country that is eclipsed, a debt to GDP ratio of 130% has defaulted on their debt. And whether it be through massively high inflation or outright default, it's a, it's a line that once you cross, no one has successfully came back from. So when you talk about the reasons to own precious metals and the reasons to own cryptocurrencies, I think the main deviation is this. I mean, if I had to, to, to sum it up and say, what do I think is the main difference in opinion or in, in ideology, to me, I'm not looking to get rich when I buy gold and silver. Now, I think there's a very compelling argument with silver where you could make a lot of money on many levels. But when I'm buying gold and silver, I am using it because it is wealth that has outlived two world wars, German hyperinflation, the Great Depression. To what Stanley Druckenmiller says, for 5,000 years, it's been considered wealth. I think people don't buy Bitcoin to protect themselves as much as they do looking for um, the wild profit potential. And in the back of their mind, they understand that it offers an exodus from the matrix. And, and that is a, certainly icing on the cake. But so if you look at it that way, the way that you can marry the two is, is to scrape profits from your cryptocurrency holdings and put it into gold and build both portfolios, you know, take a, a certain amount of profit, leave the principal, let it continue to grow and take that profit off the table in gold. And both items give you liberation and freedom from a matrix that is closing in upon us rapidly. So yeah, yeah like them a, both. That was a very, go ahead. Yeah, that was a very nice way of saying that most people who buy Bitcoin are speculating and trying to get rich, but that's a transition. And most people, I think that the uh, idea there is people buy gold and silver, not necessarily to get rich, but not, to, but to make sure they don't go poor. Right. That's right. I mean, and that's why they should be together. Protection. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's it's wealth protection. It's, I think it's interesting that still the registered investment advisor community in the United States and the overwhelming sentiment and strategy is still a, still a 60-40 portfolio, even though this it's performed worse. Uh, it is the worst performing time for a 60% equity, 40% bond portfolio in history. I can't comprehend why we don't at least hear a 60-35-5 portfolio and literally choose the five. You like silver? Great. You like Bitcoin? Great. You like gold? Great. Why are, why are we not hearing these people? Why, why are we not hearing these investment advisors and such at least saying to have some sort of alternative asset at this point in your portfolio? And Andy well, and sure, David, I want to ask you the same question. After that. It sure ought to. I mean, when you see the, the Bitcoin spot ETF or these ETFs that all the big money managers are advocating for, well, perhaps they'll change their tune. It's a situation where 
a lot of these advisors, and I'm not speaking all of them, because certainly there are a lot who understand what's going on, but many have their head buried, you know, where, where they've learned more and more about less and less till they know everything about nothing. They focus so singularly upon one ideology, like the 60-40 ideology, which, to your point, was the, the worst performing ever and, and the worst performing 10-year treasury ever. And certainly when you inject as much money into the system as we have more in the last four years than in the history of the country before it, while keeping interest rates suppressed, you create anomalies in asset values. And as these asset values uh, find equilibrium in a rising interest rate environment, that 60-40 portfolio is going to get its ass handed to it. So you're right. I think it's more along the lines of if you're going to to delegate authority to a financial advisor or a money manager, you're missing perhaps the most important thing to take accountability for. And the people on this Twitter space, I would venture to say, understand the world better than the majority of the people who are managing everyone's money because they look at it from more of a holistic view rather than this this microscopic view that is getting smaller and smaller and smaller based upon a, a a, an investment ideology that is getting tougher and tougher and tougher to um, to squeeze the profits out of as as things are changing. So I guess I would simply say you let your gut be your your financial advisor and take control away from the people who are supposedly looking out for your best interest because perhaps you are even if you are not an accredited advisor, perhaps your wisdom, your intellect, and your um, uh, due diligence and and education through alternative media sources like this, perhaps they make you more qualified to be an advisor at this time uh, in the world. So I guess that would be my two cents, that uh, your gut's your best financial advisor these days. Love that. I saw that uh, David actually left. Preston, you haven't had a chance to weigh in. Any thoughts on what we've been discussing? No, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer. If I had thoughts on investment, I wouldn't be a lawyer. I'd be on a beach in Tahiti. Uh, most people have thoughts on investments are not on the beach in Tahiti, to be quite honest. They usually lose all their money. So uh, I think you're doing quite well, probably, probably a lawyer. Tony, Nick, I, any thoughts? The, the panel got thinner here. Well, guess not. I guess we will uh, move on and, and move on to wrap since uh, we lost Rand and, and lost David there. Uh, really incredible conversation, I think, of specifically about Salon and what's happening on the ground there definitely made me uh, feel more bullish on that. Not something that I've been particularly invested in or looking at too deeply either. And then, of course, the fact that we have El Arian and Druckenmiller and once again, Paul Tudor Jones, Bill Miller, all of them talking about this. I think this ETF is coming and this is sort of the advanced roadshow. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I was just going to follow up and comment on Solana as well. Something I haven't followed too much. I've used a little bit. I've done trading uh, publicly on Twitter and whatever around it, but definitely sold this rally a little early. Just uh, I guess I need to revisit based on what Ron is, Rain is saying, the excitement he has for the future of Solana. And I think a lot of the FUD is as far as the fear of FTX having to liquidate the Solana uh, is, is subsiding. And the reason being is people actually did the research. The vesting terms on that Solana is a bull isn't even going to be available for FTX to do anything with until 2025. And then that extends all the way out until 2028. They staked, didn't they stake a bunch of it? They staked about 5 million. Yeah, I think they actually, yes, to say the estate, I mean, not that they can't pull that out or it's not future selling pressure, but I think the idea that they were going to mass liquidate any of these assets. And by the way, 
those are just the same repetitive, stupid narratives that we get over and over to get over and over again in this space. I'm still waiting for Mt. Gox uh, Bitcoin to be dumped on us and crush right. the market, which hasn't right. happened since the day I joined this space in 2016. Celsius was supposed to kill the market. Voyager sell sell off was supposed to crush the market. None of that, none of that is valid narratives. It's just uh, talking heads trying to come up with something. To- yeah, but I think that's, you know, that's why I follow a lot of the, the speakers in, in these spaces is because, you you know, level-headed, looking for the details. You know, it behooves these people not to, to just market sell and, and crush the prices because that just means they get less cash to try to make their former customers whole. And, you know, like I said, the vesting schedule, a bulk of this isn't until 2025. A lot of us think that'll be in the, the height of the bull market. So you have some time to trade and hold and, and utilize Solana before you even need to worry about that once again. Um, like you said, historically, these conferences, you have a rally and then we have some kind of subsequent sell the news event, some red candles. Um, but uh, even like I think it was Tony, he's doing a, a short up here, but still looking. He, he said it looking to buy back and get long again, even if it only dumps. Gareth. Yeah. Yeah. Just to be clear, I don't want everybody to think that Tony's shorting Solana. That was Gareth. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry about that. He popped off. So. Um, yeah. But nonetheless, I think it, this tells me I need to take a deeper look at Solana and maybe make some content around Solana and see what's really going on there. Um, and it looks like they have a lot of exciting products coming in the very short term future. Yeah, Scott, I think I those I, conversations with Raul. Go ahead. How do you know I'm not shorting Solana, my friend? I don't, but I know that you didn't say it. And so, uh, and uh, we've all gotten caught, uh, caught, been caught in the fun in crypto before. So I just wouldn't want anyone to think that. But uh, Tony, now I'm going to say maybe, maybe could possibly potentially be shorting Solana. I don't know. All right, guys, listen, uh, you're probably already following, but follow Crypto Town Hall. Follow all the speakers up here. Incredible perspective. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation as always. And uh, we will be back tomorrow, 10, 15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks, guys.